You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Raycon. Take 15% off your entire order at buyraycon.com slash mission log. That's it. So feel free to grab a pair and a spare. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 397, Who Mourns for Morn? Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion, CJ57436. What, what, was, what was that? Nothing, nothing. I, I just, I, I don't want to forget. CJ57436. Mission Log is the podcast where we examine every aspect of an episode of Star Trek for morals, meanings, and messages, and ask ourselves in the end, what's it worth? This week, who mourns for Morn? The talkative barfly has had his last drink, and Quark is the heir to his fortune. But who will also make a claim to Morn's stash of latinum? Who indeed? That is a great question. CJ57436. I still don't know what that is. Are you going to keep saying that through the show? I might. I might, at least until I have it memorized. I'm not sure. I just, um, just remind me to call my bank after the show, okay? Okay. Um. At first, I thought that you're reciting your password. I hope that's not your email password. Oh, oh, okay. I guess I need to change that too right away. Uh, CJ57436. What a coincidence. I had the same combination on my luggage. <laughs> and if you get that reference, you're a stellar. But if you don't, think about it. And while you're doing that, I'll tell our listeners, John, how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter, then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And before we get into trivia, I'm going to have somebody change those combination locks on my luggage. I mean, you know, you never know anymore. But what we do know is that it is time for John Champion's trivia if he's gotten those numbers out of his head. Uh, CJ, oh, all right, I'll come back to it. All right, trivia for today's episode, Who Mourns for Mourn? Uh, the script and the story are both credited to Mark Jared O'Connell. With this episode, we reach the end of Mark's writing credits on Star Trek. We met him way back in TNG's sixth season, where he did write the original storyline for Timescape, but he didn't get an on-screen credit for that one. Then on DS9, he got various credits, story editor and or teleplay for Second Sight, Meridian, and for The Cause. After Trek, Mark has turned his attention to writing and producing a documentary series called UFO Witness. Today's story took a number of turns to get from the initial idea to a final script. At first, it was our DS9 crew who would be doing the investigation to figure out why Morn disappeared, but that was abandoned to bring in the criminal conspiracy plot. 
Also, it was originally planned to kill off Morn. The writers were seriously okay with this, but it was Penny Jude from the art department who kind of raised her hand and said, uh, you can't do that because Morn is so popular among the viewers. So Penny Jude saved Morn. Uh, the episode was directed by Victor Lobel, and here we have the second of Victor's Trek episodes. He directed For the Uniform in the previous season, and he'll do just a couple more here and a couple on Voyager. He has other sci-fi credits in his resume, though, like directing episodes of Max Headroom and V and the fantasy series Beauty and the Beast. Kudos! To Michael Westmore here, who got an Emmy nomination for Outstanding Makeup in a TV series for this episode specifically on the reptilian gangsters Crit and Nask. We also have another use of early-ish CG effects here when Morn spits up some pure liquid latinum, <laughs> though, uh, though once Quark inspects it in the glass, it, it looked more to me like mercury. That sound effect, though, incidentally, uh, of Morn producing it took literal days to create by Foley artist slash sound editor Mace Matiosen. Let's talk about guest stars. There are four thieves we'll get to know in this episode. Uh, first is the woman who claims to be Morn's ex-wife. That's Larell, not to be confused with Laurel, And she is played by Bridget Ann White. This is Bridget's only Trek appearance, and it happens pretty early in her career after just a handful of soap opera appearances. Prior to that, and in addition to her multiple on-screen appearances, Bridget had a strong live performance background as a dancer, actor, choreographer, and singer working out of L.A. and Broadway. Then there's uh, Hain, played by Gregory Itzen, who should look familiar. He was the guest star in the season one DS9 episode Dax, in which Chad Zia is put on trial for a murder that may have been committed by Curzon. Gregory will show up again in Voyager and Enterprise, and those are just drops in the bucket of a very long resume starting back in the late 70s. Uh, we did mention when we covered Dax that he was one of the religious zealots in Airplane. Love him. And we have... Two reptilians, Crit and Nosk, played respectively by Brad Greenquist and Cyril O'Reilly. Brad is making his only DS9 appearance here, although a couple of years earlier he did show up on an episode of Voyager, and he will be back for two episodes of Enterprise. Outside of TV guest roles, Brad has a solid resume of feature film roles in such titles as Pet Cemetery, Ali, and The Lone Ranger. Cyril also has a large number of feature film roles. He's been in Porky's and Porky's 2, and he was also in Airplane as a soldier, all before carving out a long career in TV, guest, and recurring roles. This is his only Star Trek appearance. Finally, a guest star who doesn't get a lot of screen time, but it's nice to see the man underneath Morn's makeup looking a little more like himself here. Mark Allen Shepard, in a Bajoran costume, he is the one who Quark forces to sit in Morn's old bar seat. Nice of the producers to give us all a glimpse of Mark without all the foam latex on his head. We now pause to Morn for Norm, who must now tell us who mourns for Morn. 
Prologue. Odo enters Quartz Bar, looking to discuss something of great importance with Morn. It seems that Morn's inventory of Lavanian beets are becoming a little overripe and distasteful, to say the least. However, when the usually loquacious Morn refuses to answer, Odo places his hand on Morn's shoulder, only for it to pass through his body as if Morn wasn't there. That's because he's not. Quark tells Odo that Morn's been off station for two weeks, and that this hollow projection of Morn keeps Quark's customers happy just knowing their daily fixture and comfort of Quark's most consistent patron is always there to greet them as they walk through the door and to keep Quark from losing money. The hologram is so realistic, even Julian and Miles can't tell the difference when they stroll into Quark's, greeting Morn as they make their way to the bar. However, when Jadzia and Captain Sisko arrive, even Dax is shocked to see Morn sitting at the bar, to which Sisko orders Quark to turn off the hollow Morn. It turns out that Sisko has arrived with some tragic news as they inform Quark and his customers that Morn's cargo ship was caught in an ion storm, and the whirlwind of personality that was Morn is dead. Act 1. No sooner to turn a profit from a loss, Quark organizes a funeral to celebrate Morn's memory. According to Lurian traditions, all of those who knew Morn brought gifts of food and drink so that he would have luxury and sustenance in the afterlife. And aside from Quark, many, if not all of those in attendance, truly grieved for their fellow barfly, comforted with suggestions to partake in Quark's overstocked and overpriced inventory of Uridian Ale, Morn's favorite beverage, at least according to Quark's staff who were ordered to push the beverage to turn a profit. Towards the end of the celebration, Quark delivers a very convincing and moving eulogy, honoring Morn's memory and encouraging all those who knew him to honor him by making sure Morn's regular seat is never empty, which to Quark means there will always be a paying customer at his bar. However, the ever-skeptical Odo doesn't quite buy Quark's sincerity, and with good reason, because it's Quark who freely admits that he really didn't know Morn but knew he saddled Quark with a fairly substantial bar tab, which Quark is determined to settle one way or another. And when Captain Sisko arrives not only to pay his respects, but to inform Quark that he unsealed Morn's last will and testament, tragedy turns into opportunity, and that Morn left everything, the proverbial latinum lining from the dark cloud of Morn's demise. Well, maybe not. Not so much as a latinum lining, but a rotting scented one, as both Quark and Odo inspect the inventory that Morn left behind for his dear friend, which consisted of crates upon crates of the aforementioned Levidian beet inventory, steaming and rotting away. Perhaps there is more to discover in Morn's quarters, and Quark wonders, well, wonders never seats, as Odo and Quark discover the wealth of riches in Morn's abode, replete with a somewhat innocuous velvet painting and Morn's bed. Well, more of a, a bubbling mud pool than a mattress, to be sure. Quark is indeed puzzled, since there are no riches to be found, yet knowing that Morn's rather substantial bar bills were always paid on time. So where is Morn's money? Perhaps the strange woman who emerged from the mud pool can be of assistance. I mean, aside from her much-welcomed umaks. Quark is shocked as she introduces herself as Morn's ex-wife Laurel, who has come to claim her share of Morn's estate. She tells Quark that Morn won 1,000 bricks of gold-pressed latinum in the Lesepian lottery, and that is now part of the rather substantial estate that Morn bequeathed in total to Quark's behalf. 
and it is enticing enough to distract Quark from this rather nude and seductive woman bathed in mud that stands before him. Act 2. Never one to look a gift inheritance in the mouth, Quark drains Morn's mud pool of a bed, looking for any signs of where he may have hidden 1,000 bricks of gold-pressed latinum. All the while, Quark also quickly realizes that Laurel isn't your typical grieving ex-wife. She's a gold-pressed latinum digger with designs on getting her fair share of Morn's estate. And as the saying goes, money makes strange bedfellows, as do Umox to a Ferengi, as both Quark and Lorella strike up a partnership so that she doesn't make good on her threat to tie up Morn's financial assets in court. Back in his bar, Quark and Dax are discussing his most recent discoveries over a game of Tongo, and no sooner as Quark assures Dax that he knows what kind of bed he is getting into with Lorel and will never be caught off guard by a pretty face, does Dax win her game, distracting Quark with a smile and a twinkle in her eyes. Well played, Dax, and point well taken, but will it be heeded? Still riding somewhat of a high from the events of inheriting 1,000 bricks of gold-pressed latinum, Quark is caught off guard in his quarters by two alien brothers, Crit and Nosk, who are also interested in what Morn left behind for Quark, considering that there is a large debt that they have come to collect in that rather large inheritance. And amidst negotiating a fair agreement to settle said debt, one of the brothers smashes Morn's velvet painting over Quark's head as a gesture of good faith and a preview of things to come if Quark doesn't make good on Morn's debt. After they leave, Quark discovers that tucked inside the painting's fabric is some type of a computer key, which when accessed tells Quark that there is indeed a storage locker on board the station that Morn has left behind. Thank you, Morn, wherever you are. Act 3. Inside Odo's security office, Quark laments that he has to open the contents of Morn's private strongbox in Odo's presence. But Odo, whether due to station regulations or sheer curiosity, is never one to let Quark go without oversight, especially where 1,000 bricks of gold-pressed latinum are concerned. However, as Odo's deputy enters the security station with a container no larger than a shoebox, it is quite obvious that once again, Morn's inheritance hasn't quite delivered on what Quark was promised, at least not to the tune of 1,000 bricks of gold-pressed latinum. But there was one brick inside the box, one brick that also held the promise of the fortune that Quark has been waiting for. Attached to the back of that one brick is Morn's account number to the Bank of Bolius, which must be where the rest of Morn's fortune was deposited. With the gold-covered brick in his possession, and naturally riding high once again on the sheer promise of wealth beyond Ferengi avarice within his grasp, Quark makes his way back to his quarters only to run into Laurel, who, just as Dax forewarned, bewildered Odo just long enough to pickpocket the brick of latinum from his breast pocket, both infuriating and enamoring Quark at the same time. But he still has the code and the only identification access to Morn's fortune until yet another stranger surprises Quark in his quarters right after leaving a very tense meeting with Crit and Nosk in the turbo lift and right before Quark tried to access the Bullion bank account. Act 4. The stranger identifies himself with an official-looking badge and an even more official-looking disruptor. He introduces himself as Hain, a Lurian security operative who has been trying to track down Morn, the crown prince of Luria. Morn is a prince? 
Well, he was the crown prince until he abdicated his claim to the throne and made off with 1,000 bricks of gold-pressed latinum, which now, after Morn's death, rightly belongs back in the hands of the Lurian government. But Quark protests that since he has legal rights to Morn's fortune, the royal family no longer lays claim. But, and there's always a but, upon Morn's death, any financial claims and property ownerships are declared null and void. And when Quark brings up Morn's ex-wife, Laurel, who is also laying claim to the money, well, that gives Hain pause as he explains that she's been trying to blackmail the Lurian royal family for years and also no longer has legal claim to the royal family's assets. So naturally, they strike a deal, and Quark sets out to entrap Laurel to turn her over to Hain for a very sizable reward. Upon returning to his quarters, Quark discovers that Laurel picked the door lock to wait for him and discuss Quark's progress in securing Morn's fortune. Suddenly, Quark hears someone else picking the lock, forcing him and Laurel to hide as Crit and Nosk bypass the lock. Quark tries to reason with them, as yet another unseen party is attempting to bypass Quark's security system. He really needs a better lock. As Hain enters, Quark attempts to warn him of his other so-called guests and soon realized that Hain, Laurel, Crit, and Nosk have all been manipulating him so that he would locate Morn's fortune, one that they all had a stake in as they were the legendary thieves of the now infamous Lesepian Mother's Day heist nine years ago. Morn betrayed them all and absconded with the entirety of the heist. But now, since the criminal statutes of limitation have been lifted, Morn's former partners are all back in action. And thanks to Quark, they are one Quark-shaped body away from stealing back what was originally theirs. Act 5. Always one to size up the situation by understanding greed as the primary motive, Quark buys himself and his thumb the only part of Morn's old crew they need to access the bank manifest, some time by negotiating that only he, and by he meaning alive, is the only way the bank will hand over Morn's storage locker filled with the 1,000 bricks of gold-pressed latinum. Quark quickly negotiates a very thinly-veiled truce, one he knows will at least keep him alive for a short while longer. As they finalize their plans in Quark's bar, Morn's old friends are surprised when Odo enters the bar, only to be intercepted by Quark, who in no uncertain terms lets Odo know that they will end their private memorial gathering at precisely 1,600 hours the next day from their commiserating, in the very same time when Morn's fortune will arrive on Deep Space Nine via the Bullion Banking Courier. Like clockwork, Quark, Hain, the brothers, and Laurel all converge on the cargo bay and watch carefully as Quark takes legal possession of the bank courier's delivery, as finalized with Quark's thumbprint. Upon opening what appears to be a miniature vault, all of the thieves are taken aback for a moment while gazing upon a sight they've never seen before, slowly drawing their weapons on each other all the while. Taking offense to one last slight to his intelligence, Nosk turns on his brother, and Hain does so with Laurel. Weapons fire explodes across the cargo bay, and Quark dives into the vault, hoping to avoid being caught in the crossfire, just as a few stray energy beams perforate the vault itself. However, Quark's impeccable hearing picks up what sounds like Odo, ordering all inside the cargo bay to surrender. Upon placing Morn's so-called associates into custody, Odo frees Quark from the vault, watching him revel in victory, expressed in the only way that Quark can prove to Odo how sweet this moment truly is— by the crisp clinking sound from two bricks of gold-pressed latinum. 
However, Quark is sickened by what was supposed to be a bright clink, which instead sounded like a dull clank, one of which attempt too many turned the bricks into nothing more than golden dust. To Quark's stomach-turning horror, all of the bricks are nothing more than worthless gold-covered phonies. Ah, to the victor go the spoils, much like the stinking crates of Morn's Beats. Later at the bar, Quark takes his frustration out on Morn's chair, as Odo surprises him with a very special and very alive guest. Morn strides into the bar and takes his rightful seat as naturally as breathing. Before Morn could explain, Quark summarizes what has happened to him as all being a plot for Morn to throw off the scent of his former associates. Morn knew that they would come after him and his fortune because the authorities would no longer be looking for anyone from the original Lesepian heist of nine years ago. And as Quark laments to Morn that he could have been killed, a very regretful Morn demonstrates that his actions are indeed louder than words as he regurgitates about 100 bricks worth of liquid latinum into a cup, which he offers to Quark. Morn has been carrying this treasure all along in his second stomach, and naturally having such a volume of toxic material in his body was cause for his once thick and luscious mane of hair to fall out, but it was a small price to pay for a belly full of liquid treasure. All is forgiven, and without missing a beat, Quark proposes to Morn that they should go into business for themselves, because there are still a few primitive cultures who would definitely be in the market for all of the gold dust that remains from what was once Morn's departing gift to his dear friend Quark. The end. Hey, nice job on the recap, uh, CJ57436. Sorry, sorry, I just had to make sure that that stuck in my head. But uh, but yeah, let, let's uh, let's pick this apart a little bit and see mm-hmm. what details amused or enthralled us, shall we? Well, I mean, I first wanted to do this, you know, I I love doing impersonations of characters on the show. Mm-hmm. But if I impersonated Morn, we would have no show. <laughs> so I or I, I could hold you to that though. I mean, like uh Norm, can he do cause he, he is sort of your namesake in that way. Uh uh Norm, can you give us your best Morn impression? Wasn't that wow. great? Wow right there. Wow. That was I dare anyone so to do better. Lifelike. I dare dare anyone to Amazing. do better. But I mean, look, hey, look, who doesn't love a holographic Morn? I mean, he doesn't talk back to you. He doesn't talk at all. Not like Morn talks, you know, yeah. and, and, and I love what Quark said. He said, you know, he never shuts up. I trade <laughs> this for the real thing any day because it just sets like the whole meta of the show. I do. See, that that's exactly the kind of thing that I, I, I feel like on next gen for whatever reason they felt like they couldn't get away with that like 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 little in jokes and uh, you know we'll, we'll come back to this at the end of our broadcast today but it's just allowing the characters to have fun with a funny conceit and it's not just like forcing a punchline at you all the time but it's just like hey look here's the thing that we set up we're going to come back to it and like you said it tells you everything you need to know just very simply about that character. I do love the whole idea of uh, memorializing somebody with a hologram like that, though, at the bar. Like, you know, we saw the serious version of that on Next Gen a few times. You know, you have the Tasha Yar hologram, you have the Jack Crusher hologram. But here, like, how do we think about Morn? Well, we, we think of him at the bar. Although... There is a creepy element to that. It sort of reminds me, did you ever have the misfortune in the 90s of uh, walking through an airport and going to the Cheers bar? I don't remember that at all. Okay, all all right. So this was a thing. 
and I can't remember which airport it was that I encountered this, but it, it was some like weird time for a flight, and I had a layover, and I went into a place called the Cheers Bar. And yes, it was a licensed Paramount product because they distributed Cheers, and you would go in, and it looked you know really reasonable facsimile of the the bar from the show, but they hadn't gotten the likeness of the characters of Norman Cliff. So you had like Dave and Bob or whatever they were calling. And it was a couple of like terrible animatronic robots sitting at one end of the bar. And just every now and then they would activate and say some funny little piece of dialogue between each other. And it was so creepy and weird and terrible. And no wonder. Well, first of all, there was a lawsuit. But second of all, no wonder it didn't last. Because when I saw this with Morn, that's all I could think of is just like how terrible that would be to sit down at a bar and like, oh, uh, I got here too late. I have to sit down next to the robot. <laughs> this is oh, going to be creepy. a terrible night. <laughs> yeah. I might have to YouTube that because that sounds fascinating. It's, and it's so and it's horrible. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. Search, <laughs> search for uh, airport cheers bar and okay. you'll, cause they were only in airports and they were just bizarre. They were just so weird. I, I will say that there was another uh, speaking of like the efficiency of dialogue here. And I'm glad we didn't spend a lot of time on this because again, it just summed up everything you needed to know about Worf in this one reaction of Jed's talking about Morn. He's offended that Jagzia had a crush on Morn. He's offended that Morn wasn't interested. <laughs> Just like, yes. That's perfect. That is perfect right. Worf. That's my favorite Worf. I've said this many times. I like it when he just drives that point home and doesn't linger on mm-hmm. it too much. Yeah. But it is funny. He's insult because what? He goes, my wife's not hot enough yeah. for Morn? But pretty much. How right. dare he? Exactly. You know? Exactly. And look, I, I will say I like the whole conceit of the memorial service uh, for Morin. Uh, it was a good spread. I mean, they had a whole roast turkey there on the bar. They they were, you know, doing it right with the food. And of course, of course, Quark finds a way to profit, which is of course brilliant. Oh, and by the way, speaking of food, I'm just going to say right off the bat, I'm not a fan of beets anyway, but the smoking, rotting <laughs> Livanian beets just sound awful. Uh, I can understand not serving those and uh, Quark not wanting those at all. And you just gave us our album for this podcast, John. You have smoking, rotting Livanian beets. <laughs> I would say they're a grunge band. That, yeah, well, 100% 90s. they are. Yeah. 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 I'm just thinking. I'm thinking out loud. Yeah. Uh, I also like the whole uh, profitability scheme that Quark has. You know, push the Iridian ale. You know, it's like push the veal. Yeah. Right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, like right. anything that you have extra inventory of, you got to push out there. Yes. But and in the strange way of, of that being very capitalist of Worf, you always kind of have to think like where it's going to logically end because he does push it on Chief O'Brien. Mm-hmm. Chief O'Brien does kind of fall for it. And then he thumbprints the purchase on Quark's pad. But what is he spending? Right. Right. Like, like to the chief, that's just all fake money. Right. <laughs> I don't understand that. Yeah. I, I don't get okay, it either. Because he, he looks, he has I, this look of resignation on us. He'll say, oh, can't believe I have to give you my thumbprint to give you this fake money that doesn't actually exist. So I'm thinking that we've talked about, like, what does the Federation use? We've come to this theory, like, they are paid in, like, energy credits to mm-hmm. use on replicators and things of that nature. So is there... Now we're diving into like this whole kind of, like, minutia of, like, currency exchange. So is there an actual exchange in the pad that exchanges energy credits to latinum exchange values. Right. 
I don't know if there's a book out there, but I'd love to read something on kind of like the economies of scale and goods and services on Deep Space Nine. That would be fascinating. Oh, hey, look, uh, you just said that. You put it out into the ether. You will get it because over the years we have received many links to the oh. economics of Star Trek. Maybe not specifically DS9, but DS9 does complicate the whole thing. Like when it was just the enterprise from uh starfleet like we could just accept okay well they don't they don't have cash they, they don't have money but now you introduce ds9 and it's not a starfleet station and they have to deal with all these other cultures that are not part of the federation how do you do that so right yeah yeah right and and if they don't have pockets i know i'm going down a completely <laughs> different rabbit yeah. hole but if they don't have pockets where does dax stash her strips of latinum that she's playing tango with mm. like does she just carry him around yeah that's a good question i don't know just just weird yeah, stuff like that yeah let's say oh i love that painting of morn on the bar so good it's so good i want that it's very like regal <laughs> of him you know <laughs> you, you could believe but it. it's actually really well done yeah. the illustration is gorgeous totally i wonder who did that i, I wonder that doesn't uh, probably not like a john eves thing i wonder if uh Doug could have knocked that out. I, I We got a little digging and, and find out. And of yeah. course, I love the black velvet painting that we first saw Morn buy mm-hmm. in, in the cards at the auction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just wondering if, uh, because of the way that it's done, uh, Morn's illustration, it's done in that very kind of like draftsman kind of mm-hmm. way. I'm wondering if that's his concept art that was enlarged. Oh, could be. Yeah, yeah. Because that's yeah. what it looks like to me, because it has like a little bit of that kind of like gray splatter on the back where you usually create like this fake kind of contrast to make a portrait of a character right. study. So like Michael Westmore could have done that for the the study of that character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And just mm-hmm. enlarged it. Yeah. And yes, I do love it when details like the painting come back with, you know, with a purpose. Because yeah. And I also love a good velvet painting. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, that, that's something that CBS should have licensed years ago. You should just be able to go buy a... Black Velvet Matador painting. And, you know, just as we kind of wrap up our idea about the memorial service, I love the idea of a joyous memorial service, you know, and like honoring the bar chair and everybody there is like, they're sad, but, but Cork gives that great speech about filling his bar with laughter. Yes, there is an interior motive. He wants people to stick around and spend money. I get it. But I, there's something that I like about this. And I, I, I think, you know, that'll be a good thing when I go. Somebody just, you know, Norm just show up with a brass nameplate uh, on my favorite seat at Musso and Frank. That's, you know, that's all I need. I would keep that seat warm for you, John. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's a true friend right there. Yeah. I would indeed. Uh, I would also try and see if I can increase my profit margin by 5% while I'm sitting yes. at that seat. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But I, I like in the beginning also, we're talking about like the economies of writing, you know, the economy of being able to tell a very quick and very um, a poignant uh, part of the, of the story. And it was interesting that Quark just kind of throws out kind of like what could be, you know, normally a throwaway line about uh, Morn's two stomachs. Yeah. And it pays off later, but he's like, you know, I can't believe how much this guy eats. You know, he has two stomachs. And it'd be like, ha, 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 that's funny. Right. And that just means it can go anywhere. But at the end, you're like, very smart, very smart to just, you know, to put that at the very beginning where everyone would forget about it. But at the end, it pays off. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 it was a, a good way to write that in. Hey, by the way, since we've been talking about money today, it, do I have this right? The denominations for gold press latinum is it slip, strip, bar, and brick? 
Is I or did I, I get so. slip and strip backwards? I, wh- whichever, uh, no emails, please. But I, I'm thinking like <laughs> in my head canon, it's almost like they increase in multiples of ten or, or something each time. Like like they're, they're exponential. So it's not just like you know a, a strip is you know two slips, probably like ten slips or something like that. And by the time you get to a bar and a brick, so I was kind of in my head thinking, wow, you know, a thousand bricks of latinum. That that's like $10 million or something, just to put a, a, an idea on it. So then when you think about in earlier episodes, when you have Rom and Quark uh, coveting, say, you know, 100 bars of latinum, you go, oh, okay, well, that's, yeah, that, that's a significant amount of money for them to have for whoever it is yeah, that I mean, uses I, money. This is the kind of thing where, no, yeah, yeah we don't want like the the negative emails we want the positive of course, emails yeah, with yeah. data you know we want that and not that data 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 yeah. you know but <laughs> there there is kind of like a consistency that's built in the world building when it comes to these smaller details especially when you know currencies are concerned yeah yeah because uh dax said that it's you know it's easier to handle these types of like uh these types of currencies when they're solid as opposed to using say like an eyedropper to pay somebody yeah. you know it's a, a very strange way of in an abstract way of thinking about it but it is true so, and I also like that uh, Quark also foreshadows what he does at the end by clinking those two small, uh, I guess they would be strips, mm-hmm. two small strips mm-hmm. together because it, it, it for, I guess maybe it's the frequency that the Ferengi hear, but it makes something that really excites him. Right. It's very intoxicating, that sound. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's like, it's metal clinking together, but there's something else. And maybe it's the liquid inside that's kind of resonating within the metal. Right, right. That's what I was thinking. Again, yeah. we want to know these things. So... Uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, for say for for slips though, what do they do with the liquid? Do they kind of just press it into solid form in a thin veiled gold leaf envelope? I mean, well, I guess if you're talking about that latinum on a, a microscopic level, you do little droplets yeah. of it suspended in that gold. But yeah, it, mm-hmm. it's just it's a really cool conceit to uh, yeah, to have that. I think yeah. so. Yeah, I like that. Now, we've got to talk about our two reptilian criminals, uh, Crit and Nosk. There are, you know, Michael Westmore absolutely deserved that Emmy nomination. He probably deserved to win an Emmy. I'm shocked that he didn't for that. It is truly outstanding makeup. Mm-hmm. But the actors bring them to life. They They could have gone super broad stereotype with the idiot gangster trope, but they they reeled it in just a little bit. And they really, you know, both of those actors delivered their dialogue so quietly, so precisely, that it made their actions feel like they had some resonance, that it wasn't just cartoonish, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought they were wonderful. They were so great. Oh, I did have a question. Uh, if you're Quark, and you know that the Latinum is in the bank of Bolius. By the way, shout out to our Bolians. That's great. Why not just leave it there? <laughs> you know, at least until everything blows over. Just, you know, just don't do anything. Just hide out. Maybe maybe get off the station for a little while. I, I, get it. I, I know that that ruins the drama, but he could have avoided a lot of trouble. Yeah, there almost needed to be like a catalyst, aside from the fact that greed is a catalyst to force Quark into this. Like maybe one of them was holding Rom hostage. Yeah. You never yeah, know. Right. You know, something that's kind of like prompt Quark into doing something like that. Um, you know what? I, I really liked uh, the scene where where, where Dax and, 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 and Quark are playing Tongo. I, I just like returning Dax to that type of a character where mm-hmm. in so many ways she's not only enjoying herself because she does enjoy Quark's company, but she's trying to impart some wisdom. And he 
kind of falls for it too. The exact same thing that she's telling him not to do. Cause you know, Terry Farrell, she has a twinkle in her eye. She has just this little, like mm-hmm. this gleam in her smile. And when she does that, you kind of feel like quark and you're kind of like lost in that. And, you know, it just kind of like in the, in the, in the rapture of this beautiful woman, you know, at, yeah. that, at that point in time. Well, and, and she and, says, don't fall for it. And a scene like that really, like it returns us to the Dax that, we've grown to appreciate instead of everything being about the relationship with Worf. It, it just, yeah. it, it gives her a little more agency. And yeah, I, I like that scene too. I mean, another thing I liked about just like the whole Tonga wheel and seeing the slips of Latin, I really, really like the prop work in this episode. I love mm. props. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I love the design work. I love the world building that happens with the props and you have like the bricks of Latinum I thought were interesting. You know, you have the money vault that looks almost Ferengi-esque. Yeah. That giant domed covering of it. I like the, like, I love Hane's disruptor. It looks like an old style TOS laser gun, like what you had in the cage. You know, it just had the kind of knobs and, and grips and I thought it was really Yeah, nice. yeah. Like that, that kind of brass nozzle on it. I, I thought that was mm-hmm. very cool. Yeah, and it could have just been a thing like he picked up somewhere. Yeah, right. Something that's that's like you know, uh, gangsters or criminals. They they always use the tools that service him uh, that don't fail in their service to them. Right. So they always stick with you know, go with what you know. And and speaking of that scene though, when you know the the criminals keep coming kind of one by one into Quark's quarters, and and (laughs) Hain comes in last, and Quark keeps giving him the the nod and the you know crooking his neck like over there, over there. Hain's is not getting it. I, it's such it's an obvious bit but it's good it works and of course anybody should get it you know yeah. uh but of course hayne has to ask him why are you doing that with your neck and odo did odo, odo did onto it yeah. that, and that's what i really liked about that scene uh, another thing though that kind of struck me funny is that cork dove into the the mini vault because I'm pretty sure like you and i may have thought or maybe the listeners would think that a vault like that would be i don't know kind of impenetrable yeah Right. But then just phaser fire kind of like shoots through it. Now it's a funny bit. It is. It's a very but... Scrooge McDuck kind of look for him. Uh, but yeah. Like, <laughs> right. But yeah. Yeah. The, the phaser fire just going right through. And uh, I know I'm belaboring the whole Latinum thing. So please forgive me. But I, I find the whole uh, conceit of it fascinating. But in the end, I wasn't sure that were the bricks just vacuum form bricks of gold dust covered in gold mm. or just dust covered in gold. And exactly how much liquid latinum goes into a brick and what's in, left inside of it if the liquid is extracted? Um, I don't know. It's just kind of like, I want to know more of these things. You, you, got, you got latinum on the brain, Norman. You'd make a great Ferengi. Hey, everybody. I'm Tawny Newsom. I know. And I'm Paul F. Tompkins. Yeah, I know. Why are you telling me? Look, and we're back with season two of Star Trek The Pod Directive. <laughs> we know who we are. If you are new to the show, we are huge Star Trek fans. We're talking to other Star Trek fans about being Star Trek fans. I almost said they were huge Star Trek fans, too. There's varying degrees. Look, everyone's a Star Trek fan here. Nobody's not a Star Trek fan. Different types of fans about, you know, fans of different series collectively. It's It's a lot of different stuff. We have a lot of fun this season. We talk to all kinds of cool people. We talk to Michelle Yeoh, Paul Shear and Amy Nicholson, Justin Simeon, my buddy Jack Quaid, and more. And more. Subscribe to Star Trek The Pod Directive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. It's none of our business. Yes, there are several apps. There are so many places you can listen. All that matters is that you listen and that you love us and that you rate and subscribe and 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 subscribe. 
scary telling that there's no rule of acquisition about forming financial partnerships with women you've never met, who just popped out of a mud bath, or maybe that happens on Therangular all the time. Hey, we'll get back to who warns for more in just a moment, but uh, first, a word from our friends over at Raycon. And, you know, Norman, I feel like between a computer and a phone and a tablet and a TV and back and forth and doing show prep and everything, I'm looking at a screen way too much, <laughs> just all the time. And part of it's for work, part of it's for entertainment, but part of it's because uh, I want to be informed as well. And, you know, whether it's listening to podcasts or listening to the news, um, I need to get unplugged from the screen and give my eyes a rest, but I want to take content with me. And one of the easiest ways to do that is by using my Raycon wireless earbuds and just listen to something great while I get away from a screen. And I think it's important that you mention that, John, because we do spend so much time in front of something that's just really demanding of our eyes all the time. We want to turn that part of their, you know, uh, your senses off and turn on another part of your senses. And that's where Raycon, I think, is fantastic because it allows you to be part of a more present moment with with a like a, a walk or just a, a moment for yourself, sitting in your room, being able to do something other than just looking at a screen. And you can do it when you're listening to your news podcast or you're binging an audiobook, which is what I love to do. Or you can like listen to your favorite music. A pair of Raycons is what you need. They make all the difference, especially because their audio quality. Their audio quality, the fidelity in those earbuds for as small as they are, are excellent. And they have really amazing treble highs. They have really good solid deep bass. And what I love about them is that they really pair very quickly with all of your devices that accept Bluetooth connection. I think that's something that's important. So you don't have any dangling wires because they're wireless. You know, Raycons also come in a lot of different colors. I, mean, I personally like classic black, but they come in a bunch of different colors that suit your style. And style is important to us. I mean, you just can't just do this without a sense of your own kind of coolness when you're walking around. But they're also small, so that they're discreet, which is fantastic. And they're pretty much built to perform anywhere, anytime. And they have water and sweat-resistant construction. And like I said, the Bluetooth that really pairs quickly. And if you're going to use them a lot, how about six hours of playtime for you? And you can just get away from the screen and unplug and be set. I, I'll give you one more, one more on top of that excellent list you gave us. The best part, they make great sound accessible to everyone with wireless earbuds starting at half the price of other premium audio brands. So they're making it easier for you to get your hands on a pair of excellent earbuds. Raycon is offering 15% off all their products for our listeners, and here's what you have to do to get it. Go to buyraycon.com slash mission log. That's it. That's all you have to do. You get 15% off your entire Raycon order, so feel free to grab a pair and grab a spare. Also makes a great gift. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com slash mission log. That's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash mission log. You know, Norman, it's been said that uh, sometimes a man will tell his bartender things that he won't tell his doctor. I've heard that. You heard that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I think you and I might have heard that in yeah. the same place. Yeah. once or yeah. twice. yeah. I got to say, you know, for, for a show that is just kind of predicated on fun, it's a plot-driven show, there's something that I really appreciate, and that's that right from the beginning, 
we really establish that relationship. And and yes, it, it's not a it's not a deep friendship necessarily. Quark obviously is getting something out of this. There's a profit motive for him, as there is with everything. And well, Morin is just kind of there, but he's a guy who comes in and at least feels compelled to spill his guts and say everything to his favorite bartender, or at least the most convenient bartender. And, and it's this sort of like perfect relationship of convenience that they have each other there and that Morn is at the bar all the time. And it does something even more important, which is it allows us to believe the story that's unfolding. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So – yeah, yeah. So e- even if there is this sort of, you know, criminal plot element going on and, and Morn is getting the last laugh on this, purely self-serving, we wouldn't have followed along with everything that happens if we weren't buying the fact that, well, of course Morn left Quark his fortune. Of course he did. It, it, so I, I just – I love that there is, as we're probably going to say a lot in this episode, an efficiency of that kind of storytelling and dialogue to just let us buy what's happening right from the beginning. And why not have Morn develop his closest friendship with the bartender? Um, and why not let it be a way to manipulate that bartender when need be? I just – I love how you can develop complexity – and a character just by letting everyone else do all the work. Mm-hmm. To me, that that really is sort of the the magic of this episode. Yeah, I mean, and that's where also the fun in this episode comes into play because you're taking a character who is essentially a vessel for everyone else's everyone else's motivations because they are mm-hmm. propping them up to be or to service whatever the story needs servicing. And I think that's really smart. You know, there's um, it's kind of like you're you're creating the legend of a character that everyone else has a different opinion about. Uh, let's say um, if you want to take this in kind of the the where it was probably inspired by, you'll have George Went as Norm in Cheers, and you have Ted Danson as Sam, right? So yeah. Norm spent a lot of time at Cheers because he wanted to get away from Vera. He hated his job. He just wanted to be there because that's where all of his friends were, where everyone knew his name. And he spent most of the time with Coach and, and Sam and eventually Diane and, and then Rebecca. But we don't really, mm-hmm. you know, that's Kirstie Alley's yeah. character. <laughs> but he has told all of them as much of his life, all the intricacies of his life as he possibly could. But there's still that, that, that very thin veil of not letting everyone know exactly who you are. And this is mm-hmm. what is great about this story because everyone thinks they know what Morn is about. We as the audience have bought into the conceit that we're always catching Morn right after he's told some type of epic tale about his life or when Quark says you should have heard him say this yesterday but you weren't there for it. So we're always kind of like behind the joke. And now we're not even really behind the joke or in front of the joke. We are just inside the joke. And now you're like, well, who is Morn? What does this guy do? I mean, he is obviously a uh, an epic storyteller. He's a merchant. He does business. But now, what is he? He's a uh, you know a, a prince that has kind of absconded with a fortune. He's a husband. <laughs> you know, he's a criminal. You know, he's a you know he's a, a pirate. Yeah, you know, what does he do? You can believe it all because yeah. why wouldn't you? You don't really know anything about him. 
See, Sonny, you very correctly went for the Cheers route because, of course, you know, Morn is named after Norman. He is the guy who sits at the bar. As you were setting that up, uh, I had in my head, I was asking, is this the Citizen Kane of DS9, where you have the mysterious mm. character at the center, but it's all the other characters who fill in the biographical details, who fill in their take on that character. So, yes, yes, I, I just said it, that who mourns for Morn is the Citizen Kane of DS9. <laughs> so are you saying that that um, Morn's character would be like William Randolph Hearst in a way? That yes. Yeah. Or, yes. Yeah. I, you know what? Yeah. But that's, I mean, in Citizen Kane, that's where we're kind of projecting a lot of what we assume that we believe yep. about the character, right? And that character yep. in and of itself becomes larger than he ever would possibly become because right. the legend, the, the, the propagation of his legend is on us. That's why it gives us agency in the story because we create the legend along well, with we, you know, the story. Yeah, we, we believe it because Quark believes it. Uh -huh. Every moment that he is introduced to somebody, well, except for the moment that he first meets the reptilian uh, brothers, because he, he he's like, uh, yeah, let me guess, you know, he owed you a thousand bricks of uh, gold press Latin. Like he knows that they're they're at it, but he he's really he's buying it at every angle. Mm -hmm. He even buys it when Hain comes in at first. It's like, oh, he he was a prince. Well, sure, I, I, I yeah, I can believe that, <laughs> you know, and and because Quark can believe it, the audience gets to go along with it too. And that's why I like repeated, you know, one thousand bricks of gold pressed latinum because that's kind of like the, you know, the part of the gag, you know, that keeps getting run throughout mm -hmm. the course of the episode. Like, so what does he owe you? A thousand bars of or bricks of gold pressed latinum. What does he owe you? What has he inherited? What did they get away with? You know, what is owed yeah. back to the, uh, you know, the Lesepian government? Or um, one exactly. 1,000 bars. Technically, 999 bars because they actually have one of them. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's very true. But that's the, that's the conceit, again, that we buy into. And that's what makes it so much fun because you don't really have to try and logic your way around the situation of why doesn't Quark realize what's going on? Isn't he smarter than that? Isn't he, you know, one step ahead of criminal elements being a criminal element himself and a professional thief and a world-class negotiator of thousands of credits worth of gold-pressed latinum? That doesn't matter. What matters is that what yeah. everyone is blinded by greed in this episode. The the you know the the veil of avarice you know is puts the scales on their eyes and all they're thinking of instinctively is how to screw over the next person that comes into contact with this money. And it once yeah. that starts cascading, that becomes the fun of the story. Who is going to get the upper hand? Who has you know who has the guile? You know who has the intelligence? Obviously, uh, Laurel has the she has the seductiveness, and mm -hmm. the gangsters have the muscle. And mm -hmm. Hain has the posture and the poise of someone from a, an official government position. They're mm -hmm. all playing this great angle. And I really loved at the end where they all came together. It's like, oh, hey, what's up, dude? I remember. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> what are you doing here? It's like, hey, where's Laurel? Oh, there's Laurel. Of course. Of course. Yeah. We're all together again because this guy owes us money. Right. right. And that's the fun. And, and sort of the lesson we've learned from Warren is like, okay, if you're going to be a criminal mastermind, just be the guy who sits at the end of the bar mm -hmm. and uh, tell weird stories and don't let on too many personal details. Exactly. Like that's, yeah, that this is way to, to lay low. He's hiding in plain sight 
which is perfect. Yes. And he's literally hiding that entire fortune. What is it? Billions of credits worth of liquid latinum in his stomach. Yeah. Which yeah. is maybe why he's <laughs> silent all the time, because if he keeps talking, it might just upset his stomach. It could be very uncomfortable. Think about that. I don't mean, I don't even know, like, kind of like the, what is it? The atomic weight of latinum is. But it doesn't mm-hmm. seem like it's so heavy because, I mean, you know, Quark does kind of bandy around that like one brick, throws it in his breast pocket. Now, let me tell you something. One thing okay. I didn't really dig is that I know that Laurel is hot and sexy and yeah. seductive. Yeah. But there's no way a guy like Quark is going to forget that there's a giant brick of money in his waistcoat. Yeah. Right. Because that, that's got some heft to it. That's huge. That thing is that's, huge. Yes. Right? Yeah. But maybe that's why he was so like enamored with her. He's like, wow, she's good. She was able to completely distract me. Umox, notwithstanding. And- uh, yeah, yeah. I was about to say, the, the, the Umox is a strong motivating factor, but yeah. But I like, I like that quirk kind of, you know, he, he believes that he's not the smartest guy. You just have to be the smartest mm. guy in the room. Right. Right? Yes. And I really, really like that he and Odo have that that unspoken connection between them because where say like Kane's like, what are you doing? Why are you craning your neck like that? You know, you're, you're acting weird. And Odo kind of gets that way. It was like, you know, we'll be done in 1600 hours. That's when we'll be done. And Odo's like, oh, I see. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I get if it. he was going by the book. Well, as yeah. uh, Lieutenant Savick, yeah. you know, hours yeah. would seem like days. I called it. The only reason Brunt doesn't show up to take his cut of Quark's new fortune is because he has formed the Ferengi Fighting Association. That's my new central processor cannon. No, folks, you didn't tune in at the wrong time. We were just trying to do our best morn impersonations. I think John has me beat by just a hair, just a hair. And... Why wouldn't we do that? Because we're taking a look at now the very end of this episode with the morals, meanings, and messages and how this withstands the test of time or does it or does it not? So, John, let's start with you. How did you feel about this episode? Did it sell you? Did you like what you were experiencing? And where does it stand for you? Uh, So, you know, we've really said it from the beginning of our podcast today. This is a light, frivolous episode but it really works for me. Sometimes you need light frivolity where it is just purely plot-driven. We get to see our characters in wacky situations, and it's just a feel-good story. With so much heaviness in DS9, it's good to see the writers able to mix it up. And we, we just had that again with the Magnificent Ferengi. So it's like they're getting the best stuff out of the secondary and guest characters again. Um, and of course, they threw in waltz right in the middle, so you don't forget that DS9 still has its dark edge, right? There was some uh, negative criticism on this episode, and, and some of it from Armin, some of it from uh, Rene Echeverria, about Morn being slighted here because the episode's all about him, uh, but yet he still has the same position as basically an extra on the show. And, you know, look, while you can make an argument that he probably should be getting some sort of higher billing or a nice pay bump, I still, there's something that intrigues me about the idea of telling a story from outside of the character that that story is about. They did it on Doctor Who really well with Love and Monsters, where the Doctor is barely in it, but you tell the story through the support group 
who uh, made up of people who have encountered him. I just like I think that's such a brilliant episode, and it's a fun way to mix up our storytelling, particularly with something like Star Trek, where not just are we in the sixth season of a seven season show. We're in, you know, hundreds of episodes into an ongoing franchise. So you have to find new ways to tell a story. And they also did something very well here that I I think worked for the comedy, which was that they didn't really beat you over the head with the jokes or just keep leaning on inside jokes. Like, I, I think they actually found a balance where we're all in on it that Morn doesn't talk or we don't hear him talk. So you have to find ways to get around that. And it's just fun to have the other characters refer to him talking, but we never see it. So I feel like they they didn't ever just blatantly show their hand there. They found a way to work stuff like that into the story. Honestly, you know, I think the the really best thing about this episode is the guest stars and especially Brad Greenquist and uh, Cyril O'Reilly. They are just a lot of fun. And they do, they skirt that line where it's getting a little over-the-top comedic, a little like, you know, 1930s gangster movie, but then they bring it right back in and you feel like, oh, there there is some sinister quality to them, but there's also just like, genuinely, these guys are idiots, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so they they found all the right levels to play with those characters. At the end of the day, is this an amazing episode? No. Is this the best that DS9 has to offer? No. But it was a fun way to just get out of the DS9 formula for a minute and do something very different. Uh, how about you? I have a question, actually, about some of the trivia you you brought up in here about Armin and and yeah. Renee saying now are they referencing about Morn being slated as a character or Mark Allen Shepard being slated for more pay uh Armin is actually referring to both and and that's where okay, okay like I can agree if you're just saying oh look uh, uh Mark Allen Shepard has been working on this show for six years now and we're actually putting his character name in the title and making the whole show about him but he's hardly in it is there something unfair there about how that mm. actor is used yeah i you know look we don't know all the details we don't know what that paycheck was like yeah i Mm -hmm. i can get that but that's also what you sign up for and and just i was yeah i was just yeah yeah and and artistically that is the decision to be made about how you're going to tell that story you know it it would break the illusion partly if suddenly you just had them talking throughout this episode so they made some decisions you know renee felt like it was too over-the-top comedic. And I feel like, yes, it is a comedic episode, but it's not the characters going around dropping one-liners. It's comedy that works within the context of the world that we're supposed to believe for this episode. So I'm okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I agree, and and they didn't linger on the humor, as you said. Mm-hmm. They they knew exactly when to pull in those reins and not, you know, belabor you know certain certain tropes, certain comedy tropes mm-hmm. that weren't. Uh, and they were written, like you said, they were baked into the the world building of Deep Space Nine. They didn't really come out of like you know external sources or external references. So I thought that 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 worked also. I was always just curious about these these kind of critiques coming from the cast members yeah. because it's the, the title isn't. Morning, morn. It's who mm-hmm. mourns for morn, right? Right. 
So it does add a little bit of clarity to this isn't really a Mourn character-specific episode per se, but he is featured a lot in it. So I find that kind of interesting, just have them having that kind of critique about their own their own episode. Yeah. I, I do come from a slightly different angle here from, from where you're coming sure. from. I see this episode as being fun. Yes, it is fun. And the humor is, is, is well-placed and well-timed. But the thing is, is that if it weren't for the magnificent Ferengi, I would probably like this episode a lot more. Mm, okay, I see where you're going with this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because if I had to, say, make a recommendation between the two, the magnificent Ferengi will win 10 out of 10 times without even, you know, a, like a, a thought or a stutter. Because where I think the, the magnificent Ferengi succeeded, this doesn't as much. The... Quark's heroic journey in the Magnificent Ferengi is very believable because it sets everything up as such. This is just really good performances, like you said, from Artman, from Renee, mm-hmm. from the guest stars. All kind of wrapped up in this very tropish whodunit type of story. And it's fun. And it's light. And so is the Magnificent Ferengi. But it tells a more, uh, a more cohesive, stronger moral story. So say, for instance, um, where, where Rom and Quark end at the Magnificent Ferengi, we don't really have that ending mm. here. And it's not because that it should have been there, because that would make these episodes far too similar. It's just that when you want to uh, when, when you dig into like, these fun episodes, they can come with a meaning. They can come with a moral mm-hmm. and, and, and a good message. And that's just not where this episode lands for me. It's above board when it comes to the production and uh, like I said, the, uh, the performances and uh, again, I, I mentioned, I love the props. I just love everything about the, the wrapping and the package, but there's just not enough substance in this episode for me to be like, yeah, I think I'll keep this one around on the shelf and in the rotation. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that also, yes, sure. There's a, there's a Mark Allen Shepard appreciation kind of motif here and why not? You know, they're, they're, you know, paying tribute and homage to a character that is obviously part of the legend of Deep Space Nine. But these kind of stories, they just have a very limited shelf life, not enough staying power, whereas The Magnificent Ferengi is really, truly one of the best episodes of the entire series. Yeah, no, I, I totally that that That's a great argument for that because Magnificent Ferengi is such a better story overall, and I, we get more growth out of our characters overall from that. So I, I definitely agree with you there. Well, did you find a moral message, meaning, or, or maybe just a, a bigger point to ponder after watching this one? Well, I think that uh, an episode like this, because of the style of it, and I think just because that there isn't really this great overarching story with our characters, you could probably take a look at the tropes here and say, you know, a fool and his money are soon parted. Mm -hmm. That's applicable to this episode. Or no honor among thieves. Mm -hmm. Of course that's applicable in this episode. But I kind of wanted to focus on, like, you don't really know someone until they're gone. Hmm. Because that's what this episode is kind of about. And, and I'm kind of reflecting on that, too. I wonder at work, mm-hmm. since I'm going to be, you know, uh, since I have retired at this time from work, what are the stories that are going to be told of me that I'm not aware of at work? Do people <laughs> or did people really know me aside from the guy that oversang karaoke <laughs> or loved getting <laughs> love getting this Star Trek cosplay because that's what I love to do? Or maybe I was just too much of a, a heavy hand in the way I directed people. Mm-hmm. Did they know me? Right. And what are the stories uh, that they're going to tell at future events where I'm not there, where I tried to make my presence known? Will that be in their memory? 
will it be fresh for them or will it just I just kind of fade into the mist? Who knows? We all like think that we're going to make some type of impact while we're there and definitely more of an impact while we're gone or when we're gone. So you have these questions about uh, how characters are are finding ways to really tie into what do I really know? about these people that I work with? What do I really know about this person that I've been working with next to me, 10 feet away from me, five days a week for 20 years? Can I say that what their favorite color is? Can I tell you what their favorite food is? Do I know where they took their family on vacation? Why have they never come over to my house? Why haven't I invited them to my house? All I know is is that like Morn, like Quark, Morn has been at that bar for X amount of time consistently paid his bill consistently, had very cursory, very superficial conversations consistently. But in the end, they were able to pull this caper on Quark because nobody knew who Morn was. (laughs) And that fed into the fun of the episode because there's no substance to Morn aside from what you built him up to be. And I think that that is you don't really know someone until they're gone because they just become more of your legend about them than the actually person that they really truly are. And I think that's a fascinating psychological study of, do I really know the people that I've been surrounded by my entire life? You know, this is so funny without knowing what you were going to say in the summary of this episode, my, my note was a very similar take on the, I, first of all, I asked myself, does there even need to be a moral or a meaning or a message with this episode? And probably not. There doesn't have to be. Um, but it was a fun story to see how people may not really know the real quote unquote you, but then in the greater scheme of things, the real you is a combination of all those experiences and relationships. And they're all going to be filtered through the perceptions of others anyway. So what is real? Yes, you have a perception in your head about who you are and and how you operate in this world, but that is also determined by the expectations and perceptions of the people around you. So you, if you ask 100 different people, you'll get 100 different takes on who you are. So it's, it's fun to ruminate on that. Um, and you can also go watch Citizen Kane too. And but I, I will say that this is another one of those stories where you have a character like Quark, who acts in his own self-interest, but actually does the right thing in the end. You know, it, the, those two ideas, those two goals, aren't completely incompatible. And we just happen to have that represented in a character like Quark. Uh, where he is now. I, I, this is a different Quark now than I feel like we had in season one. He has grown into this character where he can still be looking for profit. He can still be looking out for his own self-interest. But at the same time, those goals have meshed with something that is it, it not always altruistic, but at least not destructive <laughs> to, to those around him. Like the bad guys actually get put away here. And then, well, whether or not we think Morn is a bad guy, well, maybe he's just too quiet for us to really know. But it is nice to see Quark here as sort of an, an ersatz good guy in the end. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. 
If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Far Beyond the Stars. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Homer Frizzell, and Mike Shabel. The best part of that big spread of food at Morn's funeral, is that now Morn can eat some of the leftovers. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.